Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. Funding the government to avoid a shutdown. Lawmakers again working on a temporary spending bill. That's to get us through the last two months of this year. Lawmakers from both sides responding to the bill. Secretary of State Alejandro Mayorkas could face impeachment this week. The latest on the push to oust him. Donald Trump Jr. returning to the civil fraud trial in New York. This time, former President Trump's legal team has brought him in. Nikki Haley is ready to bet big in Iowa and New Hampshire. How the presidential hopeful is spending $10 million in both states. President Biden and the leader of the Chinese Communist Party are set to meet this Wednesday. One congressman has a message about the Chinese regime saying it's time to take off the golden blindfolds. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Now for our top stories. Avoiding a government shutdown, again. The House is possibly passing a continuing resolution, or CR, again. House Speaker Mike Johnson introduced the bill on Saturday. It would fund the government temporarily for about two months. We're going to have to. I mean, there's no choice here. I mean, the, the world is on fire from where I sit. Uh, it is too, uh, you know, urgent. Uh, we can't mm -hmm. sit back and do nothing. And, and, and talking to Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, they needed this yesterday, in his words. Um, Ukraine needed it yesterday. Uh, the border for certainly needed it yesterday. We know that Chairman Xi is threatening Taiwan and the Pacific. Um, I don't like this laddered CR approach. It looks gimmicky to me, but I'm open to what the House is talking about. The priority has to be um, keeping the government open. And I think this is a moment where reasonable people in the Senate, and that's where most of the reasonable people are these days, have to make sure that we are not making the perfect the enemy of the good. I don't like what the House is talking about, um, but I'm willing to listen. The bill doesn't include funding for Israel or Ukraine. House Republicans previously said Congress would need to cut the IRS budget to allocate funding to other nations. Democrats disagreed, arguing that would only hurt the deficit. They say that's because the IRS would have fewer agents to collect taxes. A continuing resolution might be in a new format with staggered or layered laddered deadlines. House Speaker Mike Johnson floated the idea in the hopes of avoiding the holdups that come with trying to pass an omnibus spending bill. Earlier, we spoke with Epic Times political reporter Lawrence Wilson for insights. Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us. To begin with, Congressman Johnson has introduced this concept of a laddered continuing resolution. Could you provide a brief overview of how that's different to the traditional funding mechanisms and why he proposed it in the first place? Well, the, the difference is simply that it takes the, the new funding in stages. Now, when the fiscal year runs out, that was September 30th, if there's no new spending authority, that is new bills, 
the government doesn't run out of money. It runs out of authority to spend money. So they have to pass a new law. If that's not finished by the end of September, then usually they resort to a continuing resolution to just roll over the previous year's funding. And normally that's all in one sweep. We're just going to do for the next one month, three months, whatever it is, the same thing we did last year. This laddered approach is different. It divides it into two parts. One group of spending bills would come due again on January 19th, excuse me, and the next would come due on February the 2nd. So it gives two windows to work out the remaining spending items. And how has this idea of a continuing, of a laddered continuing resolution been received so far from various sides of politics? And uh, it's gotten a resounding meh. <laughs> it's a lot of congressmen say, what? We never heard of this before. I'm not sure. I talked to one congressman last week who said, I just need to hear more about it. I'm not opposed to it. I just don't think I understand it yet. So we're hearing a lot of that. Uh, I think people are unwilling to make an early commitment before they can hash it out, see what it really is. <clears throat> but the speaker seems to think he has the ability to get a consensus for it. In the Senate, it's less clear. But I think, uh, you know, mixed reaction, but it's not a resounding no. Okay. And in terms of are there specific government departments or sectors that would be more adversely affected if an agreement isn't reached? And do you know how the laddered, uh, you know, continuing resolution might address those? The people who are going to be the hardest hit are probably uh, lower enlisted ranks in the military because they don't get paid an awful lot to begin with. If you're raising a family on that kind of money, it's already a little bit difficult. And they would have to keep working because they are essential personnel. So there's no no layoff. They can't go out and maybe pick up a part-time job. In the meantime, they've got to keep showing up for work. And if they're raising a family on, a, say, a private's pay in, in the Army, uh, you know, that's not a lot of money. So it really would hurt them the most to go without pay for whatever length of time it is. And this deadline that's looming on Friday is, is quite a big one. If, you know, that doesn't get addressed, how important is it? What's going to happen? Well, they call it a government shutdown. It's really kind of a partial suspension of government services. So what they do is stop non-essential services. And those are things that nobody's going to die if this doesn't happen. So the national parks will close and some other government uh, functions. There won't be any new hiring taking place. And some people will just get sent home. They'll be furloughed for that time. And of course, without pay, then others will have to keep working to keep essential government functions going. So federal law enforcement is going to keep working. The military is going to keep working. Social security checks are going to keep going out. And those people will be asked to work without pay. And we all know, the, you know, the public doesn't like government shutdowns. And yet, some Republicans are resistant to short-term spending bills. How do you think this laddered approach could potentially balance that, if, you, if it, you think it could? Well, I think it might in that the big fear among the real fiscal hawks, especially in the House, is that if we keep passing these continuing resolutions, we're eventually just going to have to pass one big massive bill called an omnibus bill, which just lumps the whole thing together. Then nobody gets to really debate it 
look inside of it, kick the tires, uh, propose amendments because we're up under a really tight deadline. So this approach could be a way for the speaker to say, look, we're going to keep working on passing regular spending bills. That's what the fiscal hawks want to see. Uh, but we do need to prevent the government from shutting down. It's politically unpopular. There is a segment of the public uh, that doesn't care. They, they're not interested that much in the functions of the federal government. And there are some lawmakers who say, listen, a shutdown is better than an omnibus spending bill. But this could be a halfway measure to say, we're still working on it, but we just need a little more time. Lawrence Wilson, political reporter for the Epic Times. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Impeaching President Biden or not, House Republicans are still not sure. They first have to finish the impeachment inquiry. Congressman Jim Jordan now giving a timeline on when the inquiry might end and the impeachment begin. I believe we will get the, the, the depositions and the interviews done in this calendar year and then make a decision early next year whether there are actual the evidence warrants going to articles of impeachment and moving to that, that stage of the, uh, of the investigation. But I think this year, November, December, we will depose all these people we still need to depose uh, and then we can make a decision. Last week, Oversight Committee Chair James Comer said he thinks Biden should indeed be impeached. Numerous other Republicans in the House are saying the same thing. The Oversight Committee sent out some more subpoenas last week, most notably to Hunter Biden and the president's brother, James Biden. That's to get their testimony about the Biden family business dealings. Republicans accuse the family of taking bribes from foreign nationals. That's allegedly in return for political influence through then-Vice President Biden. Democrats, meanwhile, accuse Republicans of playing political games, saying Biden didn't do anything wrong. The House of Representatives could consider a vote this week to impeach Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced the resolution to oust Mayorkas last Thursday. Congressional Republicans say the secretary has failed to secure the U.S.-Mexico border. U.S. border agents have arrested more than 5 million illegal immigrants since Biden took office in 2021. The GOP blames Biden and Mayorkas for rolling back Trump-era immigration policies. The U.S.-Mexico border has come under renewed scrutiny following October's Hamas terror attacks. Republicans have voiced concerns about terrorists slipping into the country. A growing number of illegal immigrants on the terrorism watch list have been apprehended this year. Even if the House impeaches Mayorkas, the effort is almost certain to fail in the Democrat-controlled Senate. Former President Trump's oldest son is returning to the New York civil fraud trial. Donald Trump Jr. is back in court today as the first defense witness. Trump's lawyers started calling witnesses of their own today. The trial is proceeding after Judge Arthur Angeron rebuffed the Trump, Trump's request last week to end the trial early through what's known as a directed verdict. Trump Jr. will be questioned first by the defense lawyers representing him. A state lawyer is also expected to question him on cross-examination. Trump Jr. is a Trump Organization executive vice president. He originally testified on November 1st and 2nd. The younger Trump said he never worked on the annual financial statements at the heart of the lawsuit. The trial will continue tomorrow. A co-defendant in former President Trump's Georgia election case says he won't cooperate. Reverend Stephen 
Cliffguard Lee is a Living Word Lutheran Church pastor in Orlando Park, Illinois. He faces racketeering charges, influencing a witness, and conspiracy to solicit false statements and writings. According to the Chicago Tribune, Lee told a crowd at a local church that he wouldn't take a plea deal. He said, quote, I'm not going to cooperate with evil. This is bigger than me. The pastor has pleaded not guilty. He said that if convicted, he faces a minimum of five years in a Georgia prison. Lee is attempting to sever his case from other co-defendants. Former President Trump is pushing for his federal election trial in Washington to be televised. His lawyers filed papers late Friday saying all Americans should be able to watch the proceedings, calling them a politically motivated prosecution of the current Republican frontrunner. Federal court rules prohibit broadcasting such trials, but many news organizations say the unprecedented case warrants making an exception. The Justice Department opposes the effort. It argues that the judge overseeing the case does not have the authority to ignore the long-standing policy against cameras in federal courtrooms. Trump says the prosecution wants to continue what he called a travesty in darkness, but that he wants it all exposed to sunlight. In the former president's civil trial, his lawyers will begin Trump's defense today by calling their witnesses. Nikki Haley's presidential campaign is ready to spend big in Iowa and New Hampshire. Haley's operation will spend $10 million on television, radio, and digital advertising. The former U.N. ambassador hopes the money will give her an advantage over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. It's a critical moment in the fight for the GOP presidential nomination. Haley's investment comes as she fights to emerge as the clear alternative to former President Donald Trump. Trump remains the overwhelming front-runner in the GOP primary. Haley will run ads through Iowa's January 15th caucuses and New Hampshire's primary that follows. As of now, the DeSantis campaign is spending only in Iowa. Trump's campaign reported more than $37 million on hand at the end of September, more than DeSantis and Haley combined. Former Minneapolis City Council member Don Samuels is cha challenging Congresswoman Ilhan Omar for her seat. This is his second attempt to unseat the Minnesota Democrat after his run in 2022. Samuels says that his narrow primary loss showed Omar could be voted out of office. Omar won re-election twice despite making comments considered anti-Semitic, for which she later apologized. The congresswoman has come under renewed fire for condemning Israel as the IDF battles Hamas. Omar issued a statement Sunday touting her work in Congress and for her district. The Minneapolis district has a large Somali Muslim population. It includes St. Louis Park, a historical center of Jewish life in Minnesota. Samuels said he believes the war in Gaza will be a significant issue in the upcoming election. Coming up. Demonstrations in San Francisco. The APAC summit is bringing out protesters of all kinds. Hear what activists are pushing for. And China becoming a greater threat by the day. Find out how and what U.S. lawmakers can do about it after the break.
The five special operations soldiers killed in a helicopter crash on Friday have been identified. It happened during a training exercise in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. The soldiers were identified as 38-year-old Chief Warrant Officer 3 Stephen R. Dwyer, 34-year-old Chief Warrant Officer 2 Shane M. Barnes, 26-year-old Staff Sergeant Tanner W. Grone, and 27-year-old Sergeant Andrew P. Southard, and 24-year-old Sergeant Cade M. Wolf. They were in the region as part of broader contingency planning around the war between Israel and Hamas, for example, in the case of an evacuation of U.S. citizens. President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping are set to meet this week on Wednesday at the APEC summit in San Francisco. NTD caught up with Congressman Mike Gallagher at the event to ask him about the Chinese regime's suppression of U.S.-based Shen Yun performing arts in South Korea. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on his response. We still didn't. Congressman Mike Gallagher, chairman of the House Select Committee on the CCP, told NTD that China's actions in South Korea is just one example of the regime's economic warfare. I think this is all evidence of a global strategy of economic coercion, uh, which is why we need to push back in concert with our allies. I actually think our ambassador to Japan, Ambassador Emanuel, has done a fantastic job calling out incidents of coercion and calling on the administration in partnership with Congress uh, to push back against Chinese economic coercion. But Gallagher says the most important thing is reducing China's source of leverage for coercion in the first place. The fact is we've become too dependent on China in a variety of areas, whether it's um, critical mineral processing or advanced pharmaceutical ingredients. We're going to have to figure out a way to reclaim our, reclaim our economic independence before it's too late. Because imagine if we found ourselves in a kinetic confrontation with China over Taiwan, they would weaponize supply chains, they would weaponize those points of leverage to bring us and our allies to our knees. And so we have to take action before it's too late, before the shooting starts. The congressman says one of the U.S.'s greatest strengths lies in its network of allies, but that to be victorious in competition against China long term, outdated regulations must be reformed to break down walls in the way of collaboration. He's worried high-level talks might be leaving out human rights. Just as in past competitions with existential threats like the Soviet Union, we used human rights to advance our strategic in, uh, uh, interests, we have to do the same right now. We have to put them at the forefront of our, our grand strategy vis-a-vis -vis China. And we can't, um, we can't ignore the atrocities uh, that the CCP is perpetrating, whether it's in Xinjiang, whether it's in Hong Kong, whether it's just the Chinese people uh, who are, are victims of the, the authoritarianism and the techno-totalitarianism of the regime in Beijing. Gallagher says the U.S. has delayed key defense actions in order to send high-level cabinet officials to Beijing and set up the APEC meeting between Biden and Xi. Over the last few years, we haven't sanctioned a single Chinese official for the genocide in Xinjiang. We haven't sanctioned anyone for the suppression of freedom in Hong Kong. There's been no meaningful investigation into the origins of COVID. Uh, the attempt to play down the spy balloon incident was a joke, all in pursuit of this engagement. And so I think it's dangerous. I think it's naive. And paradoxically, it's going to make the Chinese Communist Party more aggressive because these Marxist-Leninist regimes tend to get more aggressive the more you appease and accommodate them. Gallagher's message to the business community is, it's time to take off the golden blindfolds. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Crowds of demonstrators gathered in San Francisco yesterday to protest a wide range of issues. Many called for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. San Francisco police expect multiple protests during the coming week at the APEC forum. Here's the story. 
San Francisco is hosting the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, with leaders from many countries attending. The event drew protesters for a variety of issues. Environmental concerns were one topic. We need to really work on our solution to the climate emergency, the climate crisis. We are so far getting an F. I'm here to grade our response so far, and I hope we can work it up to a D, C, B, and an A, but so far uh, we are failing to address this emergency. The money spent to entertain the political leaders attending the forum also came into question. Presidents of 21 countries, leaders are here precisely in San Francisco. They're going to be here until the 19th of November, and they are spending a lot of money to receive them and treat them like kings. It is said that they have already asked for more than $20 million to receive them and treat them in the best possible way, while our community is in chaos. We see the people here. There are many homeless people who don't have houses, others don't have jobs. Demonstrations against the Israel-Hamas conflict had their fair share of protesters too. It needs to stop. We're here to, you know, try to make a change, put in our efforts, speak up, you know, just do what we can, honestly, to help our people back home in Gaza. While protesters have different causes and points of view, some emphasize the need to set those differences aside. You know, I'm not sure that all of us have, like, the same political views on everything, but I do think it's important for people to kind of get over their differences and come together over specific issues, and I do think that APEC is a very specific issue. The protests have been peaceful and are likely to continue throughout the week until the forum ends on Friday. Strife abounds worldwide while China builds up its nuclear arsenal. We speak with senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, Grant Newsham, for the latest on the Chinese regime's mounting stockpile. Grant Newsham, thank you for joining us. What's the state of China's nuclear arsenal right now? Well, it's according to government estimates, it's about 500 nuclear warheads, and it's got a quickly improving uh, bunch of missiles to send these uh, warheads out on. Uh, it's worth noting that for many years, it was thought that the Chinese only had about 250, 300. And then suddenly, around 2021, the experts decided they had 400. And around 2023, did they decide they have 500. Uh, they're said to have uh, about 1,000 by the end of the decade. But one does note that we've always underestimated the speed at which the Chinese develop their capabilities. So it's quite possible they have more than that, uh, particularly since they've got 3,000 miles of underground tunnels in which to hide them. And when about 15 years ago, a fellow named Dr. Phil Carver tried to uh, bring that to the attention of the intelligence community, uh, there was a conscious, concerted effort made to debunk him. That was the word that was used. They were wrong, I think. Grant, can their nuclear weapons reach the United States right now? Uh, some of them can. Uh, that all just depends on the missile you're uh, shooting it off of. Uh, and as their, say, their capabilities increase, they will gradually be able to hit us with more and different types of weapons as well. We're well within range. Got it. And how does, the, how does China's nuclear arsenal compare to that of the U.S.'s? Oh, we have more than they do. But their delivery systems are developing much quicker. Uh, their numbers are increasing much faster. So in some period of time, it won't be all that long, they'll probably have more than we do. And once they've got more than we do, they're going to use that to intimidate us, to put it mildly. 
Now, Grant, you've said China is going through the biggest, fastest military buildup since World War II, and it's being ignored by U.S. lawmakers. How is this possible? Well, it's not being ignored by all of them, yeah. uh, but in total. Uh, they're not able to really take it seriously and, more importantly, have us do the things that we need to uh, to do. It was often thought, I think, that the Chinese just aren't our equals. They never will be. And like, a, say, a really good sports team like us, you don't see your rival, your new opponent, coming up and catching up and, in some cases, surpassing you. Uh, so it was, in some cases, willful blindness. I think a lot of it was that, you know, the smell of Chinese money. Uh, but we were asleep, too many were asleep, and nobody was listening to the people sounding the alarm. And what's the state right now? You said people, some of the lawmakers are aware of it. Oh, yeah. You've got, say, fellows like uh, Representative Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, uh, has been well aware of the Chinese for a long time, and they've got a committee going on right now. Uh, where they're looking at the Chinese threat, the Chinese military threat in, in particular. Um, and there's good awareness on the part of the DOD that there's a problem, but you're seeing what I would call threat deflation, and that means many China experts in and out of government are doing their best to say there's really nothing to worry about. Nothing. We don't have anything to worry about. We have time. Taiwan isn't in danger. We have time, and I don't know why this is going on, but that's a dangerous thing to do. And Grant, China's publicly stated goal is to have a world-class military by 2049. Are they on track to reach that goal? Well, I think so. Uh, they're looking at the air, sea, ground forces, outer space, cyber, electronic warfare, uh, nuclear, missile forces everywhere, even uh, looking at the moon as well uh, in outer space. So they have really are going about it systematically, and they're making such huge progress that I think one should be very careful to not take them seriously. And they will probably be there before 2049. What's your advice to U.S. lawmakers, given all this? Well, first take it seriously and then do something. And I don't see that we're actually doing anything. Uh, first thing you have to do is to stop funding the People's Republic of China. We are effectively funding their military buildup. You're going to have to crack down on Wall Street and our business class and the donor class that has so much influence on Capitol Hill. Then come up with a coherent plan for rebuilding our military and fast. There's a lot of talk, but I don't see much action actually happening. And you've got to make sure that our partners are on board with this as well. But often when you show you're serious and get your economic, your financial house, your political house in order, and then build up your military, yeah. uh, the psychological effect is immense, and it, it will have some uh, good benefit for us. All right, Grant Newsham, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Coming up, London police arrest over 100 protesters, more, most of them pro-Israel. This comes as London's police are battling allegations of bias. And tens of thousands take to the streets in Paris in a march against anti-Semitism. Some big names in French politics show up to lend their support. More in just a moment. Now we're heading over to France, where thousands marched in Paris yesterday to condemn a surge in anti-Semitic acts. The leaders of France's two houses of parliament organized the march, and they were joined by several prominent political figures. NTD's Costemines tells us more. According to estimates, more than 100,000 people joined in the march. 
We have come as a family to march and show the world that we mustn't stigmatize anyone in French society or anywhere else in the world, and that we mustn't import conflicts that are happening elsewhere into our country. Political figures led the march, including Prime Minister Elizabeth Borne and former presidents François Hollande and Nicolas Sarkozy. They held a banner with the slogan, For the Republic Against Antisemitism. They led several renditions of the French national anthem. Several other political leaders from both sides of the political spectrum also joined in the march, including former presidential candidate Marine Le Pen. I think it's a good thing. We're not here to play politics. We're here for a demonstration, for a good cause, and for and against anti-Semitism. We're not here to play politics. President Emmanuel Macron decided not to attend, but published an open letter supporting the march. His absence drew criticism from some politicians. Macron recently opposed Israel's bombing of Gaza and called for a ceasefire which was rebuked by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Around 80,000 people joined protests against anti-Semitism in other parts of the country. Tensions have been rising in France, particularly in the capital, over the Israel-Hamas war, resulting in a surge in anti-Semitic incidents. Costa Menes, NTD News. And now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from the UK, Germany and other European countries. Condemning Hamas for using civilians as human shields. Leaders from all 27 EU countries today jointly speaking out against Hamas's actions. But they're also calling on Israel to change course. European leaders demand multiple humanitarian pauses and ceasefires. Germany's foreign minister doesn't seem to agree, saying that ceasefires won't guarantee Israel's safety nor the security of the over 200 hostages. Here's the, e the EU's high representative talking about today's joint statement. We ask Israel to show maximum restraint in order to save uh, civilian lives. We condemn the use by Hamas of uh, people at hospitals as shields, but also we express our concern for the dire situation of the hospitals that are being heavily affected by the bombing. UK's former Prime Minister David Cameron has made an unanticipated comeback to high office. He was named the country's new foreign secretary after Prime Minister Rishi Sunak fired his home secretary earlier today. The Home Secretary drew anger for accusing police of being too lenient with pro-Palestinian protesters. The government said she left her job as part of a cabinet shuffle. She was replaced by the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly. That opened up the position for Cameron, who said he gladly accepted the offer from Sunak. The former leader stepped down after UK voted to leave the European Union. London police arrested over 120 people at protests on Saturday. Over 300,000 pro-Palestinian demonstrators marched through central London. Counter-protesters only numbered several hundred, according to police. However, most of the people arrested were from the counter-protests supporting Israel. This comes after British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak accused London's police of being biased against Israel protesters. Sunak also condemned violence at Saturday's protests. He criticized Hamas supporters who joined the rally and called out anti-Semitic chants. 
They also displayed pro-Hamas signs and war-related clothing. A Ukrainian military official is accused of causing the Nord Stream pipeline bombing. That's according to the Washington Post, which cites people familiar with the matter. Colonel Roman Chervinsky allegedly coordinated the attack. That's by renting a sailboat under false identities, then using diving equipment and placing explosive charges on the gas pipeline. The attacks on the pipeline hurt Russian gas exports to Europe, which in turn hurt Russia's economy and war efforts. Meanwhile, Russia today says more signs of Ukrainian involvement in the bombing are appearing. A Kremlin spokesman calls it alarming that Ukraine's president was reportedly unaware of the operation. Ukraine denied being involved in the blast last year. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is warning Ukrainians to prepare for new waves of Russian attacks on infrastructure. That's as winter is approaching. Zelensky's warning came a day after the first Russian missile attack on Kyiv in seven weeks. He says troops are anticipating an onslaught in the east. Last winter, Russia attacked power stations, prompting rolling blackouts across Ukraine. And to round up news from Europe, a rare warning from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. He cautioned Germany about relying on Chinese 5G network equipment, saying that Beijing's values run counter to those of NATO. Stoltenberg said Germany should learn from the past mistake of re relying on Russian energy and move away from Chinese telecom equipment. This was at the first annual NATO Cyber Defense Conference. Currently in Germany, 50 to 60 percent of the 5G network comes from Chinese manufacturers, including Huawei and ZTE. That's higher than in any other European country. The German Ministry of the Interior said telecom operators should reduce the amount of Chinese 5G equipment to less than 25 percent within three years. But other ministries haven't been quick to back the idea. Thousands of residents were evacuated over the weekend from a fishing town in Iceland. The country declared a state of emergency following a wave of earthquakes linked to a possible volcanic eruption. The government agency recorded nearly 800 quakes on Friday. It declared a significant risk of an eruption on or near the Rianki's Peninsula. An aviation alert is also in place. Eruptions can cause dangerous conditions because of ash spewing into the air. It can affect visibility and cause problems with jet engines and flight control systems. According to ABC News, a 2010 eruption caused the cancellation of more than 100,000 flights between Europe and North America, which cost airlines around $3 billion in lost revenue. As inflation eats away at America's purchasing power, the cost to retire continues to increase. What's the outlook for soon-to-be retirees? NTD business host Don Ma speaks to an analyst for more insight. And now joining me is Derek Giorgino, uh, NTD contributor and risk consultant in the greater LA area. So Derek, uh, I want to talk to you about retirement today. It seems like the cost to retire has been increasing. Uh, tell us a bit more about that, why that is and, uh, and what the administration is doing. Yeah, well, Don, the cost to retire is skyrocketing. Uh, for most retirees in America. And the Biden administration, in response to that, uh, has announced that they're going to try to crack down on what they call hidden junk fees uh, in retirement investment advice that people receive. 
in other words, commissions and other remuneration that a financial advisor might receive. Uh, but while that might clean up the incentive system within this this kind of service space, it's not really the main cause of what's causing people's retirement woes and their cost to skyrocket. Um, so therefore, in my humble opinion, it's not really a substantial crackdown. The real contributors uh, to these rising retirement costs are longer life expectancies, which is tough to fix, right? You don't wanna really fix that. It's not really a problem necessarily. It's higher quality of life, but inflation, which the government caused, rising housing costs, which the government, again, is largely responsible for. Baby boomers in particular, Don, are struggling to get the retirement savings where they need to be. And they're feeling anxious, uh, particularly around the solvency of Social Security in terms of uh, whether they'll need to rely more on their personal savings, which sometimes are not um, very fruitful. How far, uh, how short are potential retirees from their goals? Yeah, <clears throat> well, they're significantly short. Many retirees are struggling, Don, to even get their 401k savings to pre-COVID levels. Um, and so what the Biden administration really needs to crack down on is not really junk fees, but these broader root causes for why people's 401k uh, still has not reached the level that it was pre-COVID. Fidelity reported that uh, baby boomers had an average of around $250,000 in their 401k in December of 2021. And now uh, Fidelity reports that they only have an average of $221,000 in there as of June of 23. Um, so their 401ks are still down 11%. This is, of course, the fault of government and not the fault of these financial advisors that are collecting, quote, junk fees. Uh, but one thing, Don, is always certain about the government, they will always point the finger uh, at the private sector. But to answer your question, retirees are significantly short of their retirement goals. Forbes had emphasized this point recently, and they reported that the, Amer the average American retiree um, was almost $500,000 short of what they needed in order to retire comfortably. Um, that's an immense mountain for our retirees in this country to climb. And the junk fees crackdown, which might help a little bit, um, is really, this, this, this regulation the Biden administration wants to put forth is really just a way of inserting the federal government into the financial advice um, world. And, and our retirees are not going to materially benefit from it uh, to the tune of half a million dollars in retirement savings, that's for sure. Well, we've heard stories that uh, not only are people not saving, but some are actually taking out money from their 401k just to meet, you know, expenses. So, you know, the situation is, is bad for some, it seems like. But Derek, I think that's all the time we have for today. Uh, as always, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks again for having me. Appreciate it, Don. From Squishmallows to Barbie, the Toy Retailers Association unveiled its Dream Toys Top 20 in the UK. Find out what's on children's wish list this year. And five Viking fortresses earn UNESCO World Heritage List status. Find out what makes the forts unique more shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. The Spines of a Hedgehog, 
the snout of an anteater, and the feet of a mole. This may sound made up, but it's not. Scientists from Oxford University have rediscovered the long-lost mammal more than 60 years after it was last recorded. This special species of long-beaked echidna is known as Sir David's, named after British naturalist David Attenborough. It was photographed by a trail camera in remote Indonesian mountains. Echidnas are shy, nocturnal burrow dwellers who are notoriously difficult to find. The species has only been scientifically recorded once before by a Dutch botanist in 1961. A crazy box cart race in the capital of Argentina attracted up to 30,000 spectators over the weekend. There were 30 carts in total, in various shapes from wine barrels to a toilet and a pot of Argentina stew. Contestants were judged on originality, performance and speed as they rolled along a track filled with slopes and curves. A retro ambulance cart won the contest after completing the course in less than a minute. Our team's name is High Stew. We decided to make a pot of stew that represents Argentina because on our tables there's always good stew. Christmas is just around the corner and parents and children are checking the latest toys on the market. The Toy Retailers Association unveiled its Dream Toys Top 20 for 2023 in the UK. Squishmallows, Barbie, and Magic Flyers are on the list. With less than two months to go, children are gearing up for Christmas with their wish lists. Toy retailers and toy experts expect plush toys Squishmallows to be a top seller this Christmas. Squishmallows maker Jazzwares says 2022 and 2023 really is the year of Squishmallows. Um, we saw a 500% increase in sales of Squishmallows, so a huge part of that will be down to these lovely guys here. Uh, we sold close to 3.5 million units just in the UK last year. These cute pillow-shaped toys are soft and squidgy and loved by both children and some young adults. It's not a toy in the normal sense, it's not just for kids. 18 to 24 and that Gen Z demographic are really, really buying into this brand. So, At Hamley's, London's oldest toy store, it's Paw Patrol Mighty Movie Sky Deluxe Vehicle, which is getting a lot of attention. Another toy bound for the skies is LOL Surprise Magic Flyers. The rechargeable doll can fly out of her box. I think um, blind bags where you don't quite know what you're getting and you're opening something that, that, that has um, yeah, a surprise element in it. Uh, that's the LOL Magic Flyers. And, and so I think uh, that's one of the key trends as well. This five-year-old said the Magic Flyer and Barbie are her favourites. Are you, are you a big fan of Barbie? I have loads of them. Uh, and obviously the Barbie movie has had a huge effect. I mean, Barbie would almost certainly have been in the in the top 10 anyway, but the film has just made Barbie even bigger. Five Viking fortresses have made UNESCO's World Heritage List. The sites earned the designation last month at the UN agency's annual meeting in Saudi Arabia. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on these ancient forts. These rolling hills are all that remains of the Viking fortress. This one and four other Danish ring forts were built during the reign of Harald Bluetooth Gormson. 
the Viking king ruled Denmark from the 950s to the 980s. Almost all of them are uh, erected at the same time. And they were built uh, to, as a defense uh, towards the German Roman emperor or to the second. The castles are similar in design, but different sizes. The first was unearthed in 1934. And there's a lot of around fortresses around the world, but this, uh, these five fortresses are very special because they are geometric, symmetrical built uh, completely. It's a, it's a unique architectural masterwork. The reign of King Harold was an important period in Danish history. He was one of the last Viking kings to rule over what's now Denmark, northern Germany, and parts of Sweden and Norway. Swedish telecommunications giant Ericsson even named its Bluetooth wireless technology after the monarch. He was very important because he was the one who united Denmark and Norway to one country. He was the one who Christianed the country and uh, so he is actually the one who has founded Denmark, so to say. Last month, UNESCO's World Heritage Committee added Denmark's five Viking Age ring fortresses to its World Heritage List. It's a blue stamp. It's uh, you are in another category. You're in the same category as the Taj Mahal and the Chinese Wall, and uh, so it's it's a different. Why the ring forts were abandoned is unknown, but evidence of battles have been found at two of them. A shield unearthed at a site is on display in the nearby museum. It's the only Viking Age shield that's been discovered in Denmark. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. Funding the government to avoid a shutdown. Lawmakers again working on a temporary spending bill. That's to get us through the last two months of this year. Lawmakers from both sides responding to the bill. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas could face impeachment this week. The latest on the push to oust him. Donald Trump Jr. returning to the civil fraud trial in New York. This time, former President Trump's legal team has brought him in as a witness. Moody's lowered its credit outlook of the United States from stable down to negative on Friday. Is the United States' last AAA credit rating under threat? A million followers love her lessons. Now Ganjing World has picked her to be their kindness ambassador. Find out more about an English teacher's mission in life. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Now for our top stories. Avoiding a government shutdown, again. The House is possibly passing a continuing resolution, or CR, again. House Speaker Mike Johnson introduced the bill on Saturday. It would fund the government temporarily for about two months. We're going to have to. I mean, there's no choice here. I mean, the, the world is on fire from where I sit. Uh, it is too, uh, you know, urgent. Uh, we can't mm -hmm. sit back and do nothing. And, and, and talking to Prime Minister Netanyahu, 
they needed this yesterday, in his words. Um, Ukraine needed it yesterday. Uh, the border, for certainly, needed it yesterday. And we know that Chairman Xi is threatening Taiwan and the Pacific. Um, I don't like this laddered CR approach. It looks gimmicky to me, but I'm open to what the House is talking about. The priority has to be um, keeping the government open. And I think this is a moment where reasonable people in the Senate, and that's where most of the reasonable people are these days, have to make sure that we are not making the perfect the enemy of the good. I don't like what the House is talking about, um, but I'm willing to listen. The bill doesn't include funding for Israel or Ukraine. House Republicans previously said Congress would need to cut the IRS budget to allocate funding to other nations. Democrats disagreed, arguing that would only hurt the deficit. They say that's because the IRS would have fewer agents to collect taxes. Impeaching President Biden or not, House Republicans are still not sure. They, f they first have to finish the impeachment inquiry. Congressman Jim Jordan now giving a timeline on when the inquiry might end and the impeachment begin. I believe we will get the, the, the depositions and the interviews done in this calendar year and then make a decision early next year whether there are actual the evidence warrants going to articles of impeachment and moving to that, that stage of the, uh, of the investigation. But I think this year, November, December, we will depose all these people we still need to depose uh, and then we can make a decision. Oversight Committee Chair James Comer said he thinks Biden should indeed be impeached. Numerous other Republicans in the House are saying the same thing. The Oversight Committee sent out some more subpoenas last week, most notably to Hunter Biden and the president's brother, James Biden. That's to get their testimony about the Biden family's business dealings. Republicans accuse the family of taking bribes from foreign nationals. That's allegedly in return for political influence through then-Vice President Biden. Democrats, meanwhile, accuse Republicans of playing political games, saying Biden didn't do anything wrong. The House of Representatives could consider a vote this week to impeach Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced the resolution to oust Mayorkas last Thursday. Congressional Republicans say the secretary has failed to secure the U.S.-Mexico border. U.S. border agents have arrested more than 5 million illegal immigrants since Biden took office in 2021. The GOP blames Biden and Mayorkas for rolling back Trump-era immigration policies. The U.S.-Mexico border has come under renewed scrutiny following October's Hamas terror attacks. Republicans have voiced concerns about terrorists slipping into the country. A growing number of illegal immigrants on the terrorism watch list have been apprehended this year. Even if the House impeaches Mayorkas, the effort is almost certain to fail in the Democrat-controlled Senate. And former President Trump's oldest son is returning to the New York civil fraud trial. Donald Trump Jr. is back in court today as the first defense witness. Trump's lawyers started calling witnesses of their own today. The trial is proceeding after Judge Arthur Engeron rebuffed the Trump's request last week to end the trial early through what's known as a directed verdict. Trump Jr. will be questioned first by the defense lawyers representing him. A state lawyer is also expected to question him on cross-examination. Trump Jr. is a Trump Organization executive vice president. He originally testified on November 1st and 2nd. The younger Trump said he never worked on the annual financial statements at the heart of the lawsuit. The trial will continue tomorrow. A co-defendant in former President Trump's Georgia election case says he won't cooperate. 
Reverend Stephen Clifford Lee is a Living Word Lutheran Church pastor in Orlando Park, Illinois. He faces racketeering charges, influencing a witness, and a conspiracy to solicit false statements and writings. According to the Chicago Tribune, Lee told a crowd at a local church that he wouldn't take a plea deal. He said, quote, I'm not going to cooperate with evil. This is bigger than me. The pastor has pleaded not guilty. He said that if convicted, he faces a minimum of five years in a Georgia prison. Lee is attempting to sever his case from other co-defendants. Former President Trump is pushing for his federal election trial in Washington to be televised. His lawyers filed papers late Friday saying all Americans should be able to watch the proceedings, calling them a politically motivated prosecution of the current Republican frontrunner. Federal court rules prohibit broadcasting such trials, but many news organizations say the unprecedented case warrants making an exception. The Justice Department opposes the effort. It argues that the judge overseeing the case does not have the authority to ignore the longstanding policy against cameras in federal courtrooms. Trump says the prosecution wants to continue what he called a travesty in darkness, but that he wants it all exposed to sunlight. In the former president's civil trial, his lawyers will begin Trump's defense today by calling their witnesses. The Republican National Committee is threatening to disqualify presidential candidates from debates if they attend a Thanksgiving forum. Five candidates were invited to the Iowa Christian Organization's Thanksgiving Family Forum this Friday. They include former President Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. In a letter dated October 28th, the office reminded the candidates that they agreed not to participate in unsanctioned debates. A spokeswoman for the group said DeSantis, Scott, and Ramaswamy have already RSVP'd for the event. A Trump aide said the former president has no plans to attend. The Iowa Family Organization said it plans to move forward with the event despite the RNC's warnings. Last month, the RNC blocked a joint appearance by Ramaswamy and GOP rival Chris Christie on Fox News. DeSantis confirmed that he will attend the event despite the warning. I'm going to be there at the family leader. I think it's an important part of this process. It's been a part of this process for a long time. There's no way that that should cause the RNC to penalize any candidate. And so I was at the family leader today, did a podcast with Bob. I told him, uh, you know, I don't know what you guys are going to do to work it out, but I'll be here no matter what happens. And so you guys can pencil me in for that. Former Minneapolis City Council member Don Samuels is challenging Congresswoman Ilhan Omar for her House seat. This is his second attempt to unseat the Minnesota Democrat after his run in 2022. Sam. Samuel says that his narrow primary loss showed Omar could be voted out of office. Omar won re-election twice despite making comments considered anti-Semitic, for which she later apologized. The congresswoman has come under renewed fire for condemning Israel as the IDF battles Hamas. Omar issued a statement Sunday touting her work in Congress and for her district. The Minneapolis district has a large Somali Muslim population. It includes St. Louis Park, a historical center of Jewish life in Minnesota. Samuel said he believed the war in Gaza will be a significant issue in the upcoming election. And in Virginia, Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger plans to run for governor next year. Spanberger is a former CIA officer. 
She comes from a swing district and has at times clashed with Democratic leadership and the liberal wing of her party. She's currently serving her third term in Congress. Spanberger is running to succeed current Virginia Governor Glenn Glenn Youngkin, a Republican. The state's constitution prevents governors from serving back-to-back -back terms. A surprising demographic shows growing support for Donald Trump. Hispanic voters are drawn to the GOP candidate who says he'll deport illegal immigrants, many of whom are Hispanic. We speak with Epic Times reporter Janice Heisel about this election plot twist. Janice Heisel, thank you for joining us again. How is Trump doing with Hispanic voters at this time? Well, if we could combine it into a phrase, I think it would be fair to say better than ever if the polls are correct. Just last week, the New York Times and Siena College poll, which uh, President Trump has been uh, very um, vocal in pointing out that they don't seem to really be in his favor often, the New York Times. Uh, but that poll showed a 43% support in six battleground states, which is 14% higher than in 2016. And any time that you get a double-digit shift in a poll, that's generally viewed as extremely significant. And what explains this? Well, there are a lot of factors that I heard from different people I interviewed in the crowd, as well as a couple of different officials who are very well known, for example, the mayor of Hialeah, for example, uh, Carrie Lake. And um, I was hearing from people uh, some general themes, which include, for example, the uh, grocery prices they feel were much better under President Trump, as well as gasoline prices, the overall cost of living. Um, now, it's debatable whether, you know, a how much influence a president has on some of these policies, some of these results. However, if, if you shut down a pipeline, for example, that is going to cause the price of gasoline to generally go up. So those were some of the themes I heard about. And can you tell us what voters, the voters you spoke to there, were saying in, in Hialeah? You were at Trump's rally at Hialeah. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest reactions that I heard from the crowd, actually was definitely the biggest in my opinion, was when uh, President Trump made a statement about launching the largest deportation uh, effort in U.S. history when or if he is elected, re-elected. And I think the reason for that, according to the people I spoke to, including the mayor, uh, Esteban Novo, is that people there very much resent illegal immigration. Many of the people in that audience were from Cuba or descendants of Cubans. And they see that when these people come in illegally, they're all looking for housing. The price of housing just goes through the roof. He was saying, for example, he personally knew of some people who were only paying like $1,000 a month for a rent, and then it doubled to 2000 Very crippling effects on the economy as a result of the influx of illegal immigrants, for example. Now, during this rally, Donald Trump compared the Biden administration to the Cuban communist regime. How did he back that up? Well, he listed a bunch of things that have been happening that which are, in fact, 
you know, correct, or some of them are disputable. But for example, he was saying prosecution of your political opponent is something that happens in some of these, quote, banana republic countries. Uh, and of course, we all know that he definitely has been charged with a bunch of criminal allegations. Now, of course, uh, President Biden is denying playing, you know, any kind of significant role in that. But that is the posture of the former president. Other things he listed include alleged rigging of elections. He he also listed um, the just overall um, taking away of people's free speech rights. We, we've all seen the censorship that's been happening and that is proven that the federal government did work with some major media organizations to shut down speech they did not like. Yeah. Yeah, recent polls show Donald Trump beating Biden in several key battleground states. What's the significance of these numbers, given that we're a year away from the actual election? Great question. A pollster I spoke to, uh, Rich Barris, with the big data poll, who has access to several million voters that he regularly polls online, uh, he told me that this is the best that he has seen President Trump perform in polls at this juncture. Now, of course, a lot could change, as you point out, in a year. But, you know, considering the general trend, if that trend continues, he is definitely trending upward toward a win if he does also get the Republican nomination and also dodges or somehow finds a way to yeah. get these criminal indictments to not really, you know, affect the, the vote that much. Yeah, and of course, a lot can happen between now and next year this time. All right, Epic Times reporter Janice Heisel, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, what factors are driving the high suicide rate among police officers? We hear from a retired New Jersey police detective after four LA officers took their own lives within a 24-hour period. We have that and more after this break. Welcome back. Three people were killed in a massive house fire Sunday in New York. Firefighters in Brooklyn say they responded to the fire around 4.30 in the morning. Crews said all three floors of the building were on fire. Fourteen other people were hurt. A firefighter was also hurt and taken to the hospital with a serious but non-life-threatening injury. Nearly 140 first responders were called to the scene. The blaze was brought under control after about two hours. Investigators are now trying to figure out what caused it. A massive fire in Los Angeles over the weekend has led to the indefinite closure of a major transportation route in the city. Mayor Karen Bass surveys the damage in a situation she calls a crisis. Take a look. I'm here at the 10 freeway. There was a devastating fire last night at midnight. I'm here with the first responders, firefighters who've been here all day and they're gonna be here all night assessing the situation. So Angelinos, we're gonna to have to stay informed so that we know what's going on. Our first responders, LAPD and firefighters, they're here making sure that we're safe, stay informed, 
listen to the news. Assessments will be done all night about this situation. And staying in L.A., communities are reeling after the deaths of four police officers by suicide within a 24-hour period last week. They were all from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. We spoke with Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, a retired New Jersey police detective, for a deeper look at the state of the force and what could be driving such tragedies. Lieutenant Rogers, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on our show. To begin with, given the tragic events in, in L.A., what are your thoughts on the state of mental health in the police force today? Very, very uh, tragic indeed. And it's uh, not uncommon to see uh, police officers reach a point where they're going to take their lives. Uh, there's been a dramatic increase in suicide deaths as a result of uh, a lot of the pressures police officers face. So I'm not surprised. And so in your opinion, what are some of the key factors that are contributing to this? Well, I've got to tell you, one of the things that is not being spoken about widely is the fact that pressures from within each police department are overwhelming. You know, when we see uh, criminals uh, commit violent acts, uh, I remember going to a number of uh, child abuse cases. I mean, it wore on me and it, it, it certainly affected me, had impact on me. But I was able to overcome it and move on. But uh, the real pressures police officers are finding very difficult to overcome are the result of district attorneys and prosecutors letting criminals go even before the police uh, process these individuals. The fact that police uh, no longer have the tools that they need in order to fight crime because they want to fight crime. And so as I look at what's happening around the country, uh, young men and women who had dreams to become police officers soon enough find that those dreams become nightmares. Yeah, it's a terrible situation to face, I'm sure, and you know how it would be. So what do you think can be done in terms of the government and even the public to create, to contribute to a safe um, uh, work environment? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and the answer is this, that what we need to do is to get government out of the way of policing. Uh, there's too much politics involved. Uh, I, I've experienced over the years that when a particular arrest is made, you may have special interest groups marching in the streets. Uh, the police chiefs and prosecutors will, and politicians will, will bow on bended knee to these special interest groups. And before you know it, the cop becomes the bad guy. And when a police officer sees that happen, you know what's on their mind? Their pensions, their future, their families. So as a result, these officers back off. And that backing off is not in the blood of cops. They want to get involved and they want to fight crime. But think about all that pressure coming down on them. And to top all this off, uh, police officers have to face day in and day out scrutiny from who? Uh, internal affairs bureaus. Uh, citizen makes a complaint, whether it's true or not, that cop has to be brought before an internal affairs bureau. An investigation ensues from that. And the police officer is asking why. I did my job. And in terms of preventing further tragedies, any even one more from happening, what are specific steps that you would suggest? Well, at the moment, uh, there are a lot of suicide hotlines. There is a lot of help in the larger cities for police officers, peer-to-peer -peer, peer -peer counseling, on and on and on. In the smaller departments, there's not much. But there is one thing that I know works, because it's something we did in the 90s, and that is established cha chaplaincy programs in every single police department with a priest, a minister, a rabbi, right in that police department. So that officer, when that officer feels like they're going off the deep end, they could go to that chaplain. Why a chaplain? They're protected. They don't have to give up any information that that officer is sharing with them. 
Of course, if you feel, if the chaplain feels that the officer's life could be placed in danger or someone else's life could be placed in danger as a result of their uh, uh, mental status, sure, they will find further help. Sometimes all that cop needs to do is to go to the chaplain and speak. And by the way, what's not talked about is the spouse of these officers. They need someone to go to. They will see something in their husband or their wife who's in uniform that maybe no one else can see. And they need to have access to these chaplains also. And currently, what do you think of the state of the culture of seeking help? Is, are people encouraged to seek help? And aside from these programs you've mentioned, is there anything out there that's effective for them? Well, I've got to tell you, uh, are they encouraged to seek help? Yes, only by word, but not deed. Uh, as I said, uh, there's no uh, chaplains in these many police departments. There's no real uh, push to get cops to find help. And the police officer, keep in mind, they're, wor they're worried about a stigma, that they're going to be uh, isolated as someone who is unstable, and then they're going to end up losing their job. Uh, so they weigh all of this. That just puts more pressure on them. They need to know their police chiefs back them, their supervisors back them, and their peers back them. And that would go a long way in preventing these tragedies from happening. All right. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, retired New Jersey police detective. Thank you. Thank you. The U.S. is facing a growing health care crisis. According to nonprofit research group KFF, over 10 million people have been abruptly cut off from critical health services in recent weeks. KFF data shows a surge in Medicaid participants being disenrolled by states. 35% of those completed their renewal forms. Texas saw the most disenrollments at 1.2 million. California and Florida both experienced about 730,000 cuts. New York followed with 650,000. The cuts stem from COVID-era policies ending. The family's first Coronavirus Response Act mandated continuous Medicaid enrollment during the public health emergency. In nearly two years, starting February 2020, Medicaid enrollment rose from 71 million to almost 87 million. That's about a 22% increase. Now the program is unwinding and returning to pre-pandemic operations. Before you tuck your child into bed tonight, you need to listen up. Thousands of children's nightgowns have been recalled due to a burn hazard. The recall affects more than 13,000 nightgowns that were sold by Imunzies. They were sold exclusively on Amazon from this past March through June. The Consumer Product Safety Commission says the nightgowns fail to meet the flammability standards for children's sleepwear. They were sold in various colors and in several sizes. They also have Imunzies made in China and the washing instructions printed on a sewn-in label. Thankfully, no injuries have been reported, but consumers should stop using them and contact the company for a refund. Another recall comes from IKEA. The company says the fittings that attach its leaden flat mirrors to the wall can break, causing the mirror to fall and possibly break. It includes over 14,000 mirrors sold in the U.S., expanding from the over 22,000 first recalled in March. They were sold from December 2019 through this past June. The company says it has received 10 reports about the mirror. That's in addition to the 55 reports under the previous recall. Thankfully, no injuries have been reported. The Pentagon's main UFO investigator is stepping down from office in December. 
Director Sean Kirkpatrick worked at the Pentagon and the CIA over a 27-year career. During his time as director, DOD says Kirkpatrick investigated more than 900 unidentified anomalous phenomena, or UAP. The DOD lauded Kirkpatrick's commitment to transparency with Congress and the American people. The Defense Department added that the, physics, the physicist leaves a legacy the department will carry forward. Now the DOD and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence are looking for the office's next director. Coming up, a new plan to counter North Korea's nuclear threats, what Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said in South Korea, and other top news from Asia when we return here on NTD News. Welcome back. Credit rating agency Moody's lowered its outlook on the U.S. government debt. According to the agency, the outlook is now negative, down from stable. Joining us now to discuss is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, tell us what this means. Well, first of all, Chris, uh, let me explain the difference between a credit outlook and a credit rating. So what Fitch, uh, sorry, what Moody did was lower its outlook on the U.S. credit. And what that means is they potentially see a downgrade to the U.S. credit rating potentially in the future. And that's what negative means, a potential downgrade. Uh, there's uh, two other uh, uh, positions, uh, stable and positive. Positive means uh, they potentially see uh, an increase in the future for the credit rating. So currently the U.S. Uh, stands uh, for its credit rating at AAA, and that's, that's the highest. And what credit rating is, is essentially the likelihood that the U.S. government or a company, uh, the likelihood that they'll meet their financial obligations. So the U.S. is still at AAA, according to Moody's. So what they cited for the downgrade in terms of the outlook for this credit is um, extreme um, you know, political politi polarization. Uh, that's one of the factors. And as well, the U.S. is uh, seeing a lot of national debt and high interest rates accompanying that. So those are the reasons. And Don, how is this going to impact the U.S.? Well, first of all, I think nobody debates that uh, the national debt is a problem. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, national debt, 120% uh, to GDP. So nobody is saying that uh, the debt is not a problem. But as, as for what uh, the ratings mean, in my opinion, uh, I think the ratings itself, it doesn't really matter that much because if we were to actually rate the U.S. government as it was a company, I think uh, the rating would actually be a lot lower than triple A. Um, I, I won't get into what it would be, but it would not be a triple A. So in that sense, uh, perhaps it's not accurately rated. But I have to mention this, the U.S. government is not a company, right? We, we have the U.S. Treasury, we have the Federal Reserve. So we can actually print money uh, to meet financial obligations and companies can't do, do that. So that's one of the reasons. Now, an, another thing that I have to talk about is when interest rates gets too high um, and the risk of not paying uh, the debt is on the rise, the U.S. Federal Reserve can simply lower interest rates. 
potentially to zero. And if interest rates is at zero, I mean, anybody can afford unlimited amounts of debt if you don't have to pay any interest. So there's no threat there as well. So um, the bottom line is, I mean, where else are you going to put your money, right? Other than the U.S. Treasury, you're going to buy Chinese bonds. You're going to put your money uh, in Israel. No, at the end of the day, the U.S. Treasury is still the most risk-free. And that's why I think this rating uh, potentially doesn't really matter that much. All right. So besides this Moody's outlook downgrade, Don, what else is happening in the business world right now? Yeah, sure. Uh, just a quick update on, on a number of things here. And to start off, Harvard is under fire. It seems like more than 1,600 Jewish alumni have criticized the university for failing to tackle rising anti-Semitism on campus. And some have pledged to actually withdraw their donations until the issue is resolved. And it all began shortly after the October 7th terrorist attacks. And according to a letter from the alumni, more than 30 Harvard student groups showed support for the slaughter of Israeli civilians. The Harvard, Harvard uh, College Jewish Alumni Association sent the letter to the administration on October 30th. And other than that, uh, I think a lot of us are wondering what happened to the SAG-AFTRA strike and what happened to the deal. Well, it seems like new details have been released uh, of the labor deal between Hollywood Studios and the SAG-AFTRA Actors Union. Uh, the tentative agreement includes groundbreaking raises, benefit increases, and protections regarding artificial intelligence. Uh, the deal is still subject to member ratification, but it entails $1 billion in new wages and benefits, a 7% raise in minimum payments, and a 17% background actor wage increase. And notab notably, it introduces consent and compensation safeguards for AI use. And we know that was a big point of contention with uh, these strikes. And lastly, you know, Thanksgiving right around the corner. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, so whether you're driving or flying, uh, better get ready for heavy crowds because uh, traffic and long lines are coming for this Turkey Day. AAA says it's going to be the busiest Thanksgiving in several years, actually. Uh, so we're talking big numbers here. Uh, AAA says a total of nearly 55.4 million people will be traveling between the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and the Sunday after the holiday. That includes upwards of 49 million Americans driving. But let's talk about the skies. Airlines are expecting a record-setting number of passengers over nearly a two-week period. And this period includes the weekend before Thanksgiving and the Monday or Tuesday afterwards. All right, uh, that's all from me. Great, thank you so much, Don. Thank you. Thank you, Don. And now shifting gears, we have some short headlines from countries in Asia and Oceania. The U.S. is pledging to back South Korea with nukes if it comes to it. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Seoul today for annual security talks with South Korean military officials including the country's defense minister. This year, they're updating a security agreement with the aim of more effectively countering North Korea's nuclear and missile threats. The two leaders signed a new version of the tailored deterrence strategy agreement. It was revised for the first time in a decade to address the growing threat of North Korea's military nuclear program. The new document spells out that the U.S. would mobilize its full range of military capabilities, including nuclear ones, to defend South Korea in the event of a North Korean 
nuclear attack. We have been tested time and again, and we have met every challenge. Together, we built one of the most robust, capable, and interoperable alliances on Earth. We have deterred major conflict and aggression on the Korean Peninsula for seven decades. If necessary, we remain ready to fight tonight. And joining their meeting online was the Japanese defense minister. The three defense chiefs are planning to share real-time data on North Korean missiles with each other starting in December. The three ministers discussed how they could denuclearize North Korea. They also condemned growing military cooperation between North Korea and Russia and stressed the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. And speaking of Japan, the country's self-defense forces held disaster drills on an island close to Taiwan. Yanunguni Island in, is Japan's westernmost island, located about 68 miles from Taiwan. The island has some 1,700 residents. The drills were mock tsunami evacuations, but a local town hall official said they could also give people something to think about that may come in useful later in a Taiwan emergency. Around 200 town officials and Japanese troops participated. In August last year, the Chinese regime fired missiles into the sea close to Yonanguni in response to the then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And in India, 40 workers are trapped inside a tunnel. It collapsed on Sunday. Rescue operations are underway today. The tunnel was under construction in a hill town in northern India. The reason for the collapse is still unclear. As per rescue personnel, all of the trapped workers are reportedly safe with enough fresh air and they're able to receive basic supplies like food and water. Rescue operations are facing challenges due to falling debris from the unfinished part of the tunnel. Several of Australia's biggest ports are back in operation after a cybersecurity incident. The breach had crippled container terminals in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and Fremantle. They were forced to suspend cargo movements for three days. Port company DP World Australia said operations had resumed this morning, though there would be disruptions over the coming days. The news was a relief for businesses, with the firm handling about 40% of the goods that flow in and out of the country. DP World didn't say if it had received any demands during the latest incident. The company said it was investigating what happened. And coming up, a million followers love her lessons. Now Ganjing World has picked her to be their kindest ambassador. Find out more about her when we return. Thank you for staying with us. Today is the perfect day to go out of your way for someone else. That's because it's World Kindness Day. Scientists say doing something kind is actually good for your health. It's a buffer against stress as well as anxiety and depression. Some studies even suggest it can help you live longer. The Global Awareness Campaign today is the brainchild of the World Kindness Movement, a group founded in 1998. Since its inception, World Kindness Day has become a global movement. Every November 13th, it's a reminder to do something nice and focus on the power of doing good. People are encouraged to make acts of kindness a part of their everyday lives.
Jennifer Lebedev is a longtime English teacher on social media. She's built up a massive following over the years. She's also known for her compassionate and positive approach to teaching her followers. Now she's been named Kindness Ambassador for the Ganjing World Social Platform. Hello, I'm so Jennifer Lebedev is a YouTube English teacher. Her channel, English with Jennifer, has been around for 15 years. Her popularity increased over time, and she now has one million subscribers. She attributes much of her success to positivity. She feels teaching English is her destiny in life. What's so funny, I mean, when I first started on YouTube, it was 2007, and the early years, 2007, 2008, you know, people would ask comments, you're pretty good at this, like, have you considered teaching? <laughs> like, yes, actually, <laughs> I have. <laughs> you know, I, have, I went to college, I got certified to teach, I've studied linguistics, um, yes, I do think about teaching professionally. <laughs> so, um, I actually had a path where I thought I was going to be teaching Russian as a foreign language and then when I went over to do my graduate studies in Russia, I started teaching English and then that's when I sort of pivoted and it was all for the best. It was the path I was meant to be on. I felt it. The philosophy at the core of her videos is to treat the audience like close friends or family. She sees her role as much more than just a gatekeeper of knowledge. I have to be that cheerleader for some of my students who, who um, you know, have their moments of self-doubt or frustration um, and, and tell them, you are amazing. Like, and people don't see how amazing you are because most of them haven't been in your place. They, they don't know the challenges that you're facing. Jennifer says what you put into something is what you get out of it and that your expectations can influence your experience. That's why she imbues her lessons with kindness, caring, and positivity. What you put out is what you get. You put out positivity, you receive it. You know, the people who are saying the world is awful, it's blah, 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 they're like grumbling and complaining. It's because they're putting out that negative energy, right? What do you expect to receive if that's what you're putting out? And I think as I've really tried to embrace uh, this positive mindset and say, this is who I want to be. I, there's different parts of me, but we choose which parts to embrace and which parts to share with others. Her message of positivity and kindness is evident in her considerable number of followers. She believes in the mission of Ganjing World and jumped at the chance when the platform invited her to be its kindness ambassador. So my message to Ganjing is it's a beautiful mission. Hold on to your core and find the beautiful ways to sustain it. For me, it's been my interaction with people, with learners and other teachers, and that's what sustained me. And I'm so happy and blessed to say this goes back to the idea that if you put the positivity out there, the kindness, it should come back. The people that you'll be attracting should be like-minded, and that makes the journey all the more pleasant. It has for me. Brain fog can be frustrating, but the good news is there are a variety of treatment options. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Do you feel like your thinking is fuzzy or scattered? If so, you may be dealing with brain fog. In general, brain fog refers to problems associated with concentration, attention or focus, and memory. Brain fog is often considered more a symptom of other conditions than a condition in and of itself. The symptoms and severity of brain fog vary from person to person, but people report the following symptoms. 
a feeling of mental fuzziness, a feeling of being in a cloud, exaggerated mental fatigue, feeling scattered, difficulties with concentration or attention, having trouble staying focused, difficulties with working memory, increased forgetfulness and difficulties processing information. Scientists are still trying to understand what exactly causes brain fog, but it's understood inflammation may be the primary cause. Triggers include toxins such as illegal drugs, cigarettes and alcohol, food sensitivities such as gluten intolerance, histamine intolerance, gut microbiome imbalances, viruses or infections, poor nutrition, lack of sleep, chronic stress, certain medications including cancer treatments, hormonal changes and conditions, autoimmune conditions and depression and chronic pain. Treatment depends on the cause of your brain fog and may include the following diet and nutrition, sleep improvement, stress management, hormonal regulation, and transcranial direct current stimulation. There are numerous nutrients that affect cognitive function. Supplementing with the following nutrients may improve brain fog symptoms. Omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, flavonoids, lemon balm, vitamin B12, vitamin C, and magnesium. And just in closing, remember to exercise regularly. Practice mindfulness, pray, stay hydrated, and address any underlying conditions. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.